Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Celtic Boys Club Scandal podcast. If you don't know what the Celtic Boys Club Scandal is, well stay tuned, we'll be unpacking this explosive story in detail over the coming months. My name's Adrian Goldberg and I'm also making a documentary about it with filmmaker Lawrence Leonard. If you want to support our work, there is a link on our podcast page. This podcast has only been made possible thanks to the generosity of the hundreds of people who've already donated. Thank you to each and every one of you who has given. To give you a flavour of what this story is about, we're going to hear from Michelle Gray, whose brother, Andrew Gray, died in 2017. Andrew was a youngster at Celtic Boys Club in the 1980s. His evidence helped secure a second conviction against former Celtic Boys Club coach Jim Torbett in 2018. Torbett was jailed on that occasion for six years, having been found guilty of similar offences in 1998. Michelle is angry that the Scottish Football Association has once again delayed publishing a final report into historical child sex abuse, covering a number of clubs in Scottish football. She says it's the eighth time she's been led to believe it would appear, only to be disappointed. Here's Andrew's story, as told by Michelle. Andrew was just the, the best wee brother any sister could ask for. He disclosed of the abuse that he suffered at the hands of Torbett in December 2016. Basically, just joined, after he joined um, the, the Celtic Boys Club, that's when the abuse started. And it started from, sorry, obviously from the age of 12 up until he was around 15 years of age. Thankfully, we got Torbett convicted of the horrific crimes against Andrew in November 2018. And we have been fighting really since then um, for this massive cover-up, which we believe happened at Celtic Boys Club, to be brought into the public domain um, and to get some sort of justice for the, the, the other victims and survivors. You say your brother was 12 when he was abused. How long did it take him to feel confident enough to declare what had happened to him? He was 40, Adrian, when he picked up the phone to the NSPCC and reported the abuse. Um, so nearly 30 years he had carried that for. Um, and, and, and once he spoke to us, to my mum and I about it, you know, he, he did say it was something that he planned to, to take to the grave. And he said he, he just felt now is the time that I speak out and ensure no wee boy, or do all I can, sorry, to ensure no wee boy suffers what I suffered. What impact, Michelle, do you think the abuse had on your brother? And do you know how long it continued for? The abuse, we believe, and, and Andrew, um, kind of, he didn't go into great detail, but from what he told us, the abuse um, carried on until he was about 15 and he um, left the boys' club and joined another um, football team. There's no mistake, Adrian, that it absolutely destroyed Andrew's life. Um, he found it really difficult to be in a relationship, just to hold down a, a job, to trust people. Um, he suffered terribly with his mental health um, you know and, and we did question over the years and, and certainly before my dad died as well you know we would have discussions and say you know why is is Andrew acting sometimes the way that he would but once we found out of what he'd suffered it was just like about the, the, the jigsaw just started to to make sense yeah I was going to ask that really that when you knew about the abuse did it 
help you make sense of things that you saw in Andrew's life, which maybe at the time you, you couldn't quite figure out? Without a shadow of a doubt, you know, Andrew would, there would be lots of violent outbursts from Andrew. Um, you know, it would be one minute, you know, sitting quite happy or, or seem to be sitting quite happy. And the next minute it would fly into a rage, you know, and, and we could never understand that. Um, and, and he did have problems with gambling and, and some addiction problems as well. And, you know, it just breaks my heart now to to know that this was his way of trying to deal with what he suffered as a child. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of guilt that I carry as his big sister. I feel that maybe he should have... We, I should have had a closer relationship for him to be able to tell me so that I could have tried to, to put a stop to it. And that's something that will live with me for the rest of my life as well, Adrian, because we were very, very close as children growing up. There's 15 months between Andrew and I. Um, so, yeah, it, it destroyed his life. And we should make clear, Michelle, that your brother's death wasn't related directly to the abuse that he suffered, but... The tragedy of it is that he didn't live to see his abuser jailed. Yeah, that's that's another um, pain, painful um, reminder of, of what's happened for us. You know, Andrew disclosed in, as I say, December 2016. And within um, seven months, Andrew tried to take his life on three separate occasions. He just felt that it was a box that he had closed shut, that he'd had to open up again to give the police the evidence and he was tormented with the flashbacks and the horrors of, of what happened to him. Um, we decided in July um, of, of 2017 that it might be best for him to, to try and get away from Glasgow and, and switch off and he went to visit a, one of his best friends in, in Australia who'd emigrated out there. plan was for Andrew to stay out there for three months and, and really just completely try and forget about the, the evidence he'd given to police. Sadly, on the 30th of, of September, Andrew um, dived into a swimming pool and he misjudged the depth and he broke his neck. Um, I travelled out to Australia immediately and um, was with him for 16 days before he passed. During those 16 days, he, he was in and out of consciousness, you know, and he did make it quite clear to me that if he didn't make it, I carried on this journey for him, um, not only just for him, but for all the other victims and survivors. Um, and, and that's something that I'm still trying to do today. You know, mum and I have not had the chance to grieve for Andrew properly because we, we fought really for, for the, the periods between his death up until the trial for his evidence to be used. Andrew had given six separate statements to police, which were very, very detailed. Um, there was another victim involved in, in our trial and without the bravery of that victim having taken a stand and being put through two days of pain, I can only describe that as for, for him, um, without him having done that and Andrew, Andrew's obviously evidence that, that was used from beyond the grave, um, we would never have got a conviction. Um, so it, for me, that's so powerful that that two men that, that, that didn't know one another um, and one was here and, and one has passed and they, we, we still managed to make sure that Torbett was, was convicted and is, is now behind bars for these horrific crimes that he, he, he did against children.
Michelle Gray talking about her brother Andrew, and you can hear the full version of that interview on my podcast, Adrian Goldberg's Talk Show, along with the story of another survivor, Gordon Woods. Now, the SFA has published an interim report into historical child sex abuse, but the final report, which includes Andrew's personal testimony, has still to see the light of day. Here's Michelle again. We've been waiting for that report to be published since June 2018, the full report to be published since then. We have repeatedly been told over the last two years that the report would be published, only for, for it then not to be published and for it to be given several different excuses and ranging from back in 2018, it was because of the ongoing court proceedings, which we completely understood. We've then had covid that was, we were told that at the beginning of this year. Um, and really now, I, I honestly don't know what, what the reason is that it can't be published. As far as I'm concerned, from what I've been told, it's been finished for several months um, and is now sitting with lawyers that the SFA have asked to, to have a look over. Yeah, I had conversations via email with the SFA in July saying the final report is in the final stages of legal sign-off due to ongoing live cases. Well, that was now three months ago. And what makes this particularly painful for you is that you have been given indications on more than one occasion that the report was about to be published. Yeah, absolutely. Um, On the 4th of September, I received a text message um, from someone from the inquiry team to tell me that the report, the final report would be published on the 11th of September, so that would be the following Monday. I then contacted some other survivors and victims to say, good news, you know, um, the report is going to get published next week and, and hopefully we can then start to get the answers that, that we've we've asked and and we've, we've seeked for so long. Within about an hour, I then received another text message from the same person to tell me that, they were really sorry. However, they have now been told that the, the report won't be published on the 11th of September. However, it will be published at some point in September and, and certainly by the end of September. So once again, you know, we, we were told it would be it would be published only to then be told an hour later, sorry, it won't be. Um, I then contacted the SFA inquiry team on the 25th of September and I asked them when over the course of the next five days would the report be published. I then received a text message back to say you need to contact the SFA. It's entirely up to them now. I then contacted the SFA and I was told that I shouldn't have been given the information that I was given them having been told that the report would be published in September because in actual fact that wasn't going to happen and it was with lawyers and would be published as soon as it could be. We have been hearing the same excuses since June 2018 and I can't even begin to tell you how frustrated and angry it makes us all feel. Not only is Andrew's testimony within that report there's also other men that have passed away, sadly, since the report and the inquiry started. Um, and their testimonies are in there as well. I just don't, I, I can't understand and can't believe that they continue to delay this and, and basically kick the ball up the park, so to speak, without having a, a grain of thought to what it does to 
the victims, survivors, their loved ones, what, what it does to their mental health um, and, and the pain and suffering that it, it, it just puts on them and waiting for this to, to, to be finalised. What impact has it had on you and your mum? It, it's hard to kind of um, describe, but it really, it's really messed with our mental health. We haven't been privy and we don't know what Andrew told the SFA in relation to the abuse that he suffered. So each time you are told, okay, the report's going to go out next week or in two weeks' time, you prepare yourself mentally, really to to, to prepare yourself for, for what you're going to read um, and learn about somebody that you love so dearly had suffered, only for them then to come back and say, whoops, sorry, we've made another mistake. It's not going to get delayed in the next week or 10 days or, or whatever time frame they've said. So I honestly can't put any words how upsetting it is. It, it's, it's one of these things... Certainly where my mum's starting to feel, will I ever get to see this and will I ever get to learn the full impact of what has went on? Um, Because it's just delay after delay after delay. But there is information here, details about the abuse that your brother suffered that for his own reasons he didn't feel able to share with the family at the time, but which he did share with the inquiry. And it's that information that you will be presented with at some point when the final report is published. And you're having to gird yourself psychologically to deal with that. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that I sat with um, the head of the the SFA inquiry back in, I think it was probably around sort of, April, May 2018, maybe maybe before then, Adrian. And I was, you know, I was asked at that point, you know, as I was um, Andrew's next of kin, if we would agree to that testimony being um, published. And, you know, it was something that we had never even seen. And, and of course, at that point, you're quite anxious and, and you think, well, would Andrew want it published? But we agreed to it because obviously everything else has been in the public domain Um in relation to Andrew's court case and, and anything that's happened since then. To think that the time length of time that's passed and we're still sitting without that full report, without all of the recommendations, just without the basic respect that the, the men and the, the involved in this and their families and loved ones deserve, it's absolutely appalling. And I can't get my head around the fact that the SFA just think that this is acceptable and they'll just keep, you know, giving us a date and then delaying it, giving us a date and then delaying it. And the other thing that's really frustrating is I've obviously, and and several others, have contacted the Scottish Government about this and we're repeatedly told that the Scottish Government can't get involved or comment on it because it's a matter for the SFA and they won't acknowledge even the, the survivors or victims until the report is published. So everyone's just kept in limbo. We're, we're just waiting. And, and and right now the SFA hold all the cards and it's, it's truly appalling. How many times have you been led to believe that the report was about to be published, only for it not to be published? Over the last two years, we have been told eight times that that report was getting published and Andrew's testimony would be in it. 
only for it not to happen. Obviously, September was was the the, the, the most recent time that we've been told the report would be published um, in September 2020, and that's failed to happen also. The SFA are publishing the report. They've commissioned the report, but it is described as an independent report. Are you confident that it is an independent report, given that you're having these conversations with the SFA, who who ultimately are publishing it? No, I'm not. And I'll tell you the reason for that. Early on, um, after Andrew died and, and the SFA inquiry team asked if they could meet up with Mum and I for us to tell our experience of, of what had happened to Andrew, we met with two people that we really put our trust into and thought, OK, well, you guys are independent to the SFA. We shared with them our experience of how, how Andrew had been treated by the SFA following his disclosure leading up to his death in relation to being over at Hamden, having lunch with Stuart Reagan, Stuart Reagan offering Andrew to put him through his coaching badges when he, he returned from, from Australia, for then Andrew to pass and not one person from the SFA to pick up a phone or send a condolence card to my bereaved mother. So we did, we put our trust in these guys. I found out early on this year that one of those people has been employed by the SFA since 2018, round about the same time that Mum and I met with that, that the, the, the two inquiry team members to share our experience. Now, my question to the SFA is, how can you have an independent inquiry and within that independent inquiry have someone who is employed by yourselves? That, for me, is like someone marking up their own homework. I certainly wouldn't go and write a bad report about my employer. And for me, that just speaks volumes. We've been lied to in that respect as well. We've been told all along, these guys that are part of the the inquiry team are completely independent and separate to the SFA. Well, do you know what? You're absolutely, it's absolutely untrue. On that, Michelle, I did make an inquiry about the individual that you're talking about and asked the SFA through their press office explicitly, can you give me any information about this individual who appears to be employed by the SFA, but has also been working on what the SFA describes as an independent inquiry? The press office handling the inquiry stopped responding to me. Hello, Uh, I'm a journalist. I want to know the answer to this question. Is somebody who has worked on the independent inquiry now employed by the SFA? which is what you and other survivors and victims have told me. The SFA have not responded to that. That's appalling. I I have it as proof. Um, I have from one of the members of the inquiry team confirmed that that has been the case. And that's not to suggest there's any wrongdoing on the part of that individual. Let's be absolutely clear about that. But it does put question marks over the independence of the supposedly independent inquiry, questions which the SFA, in my experience, appears to be unwilling to answer. Andrew, it has to be said as well, having been initially welcomed in by the SFA, in your view, was not as well looked after by them as he should have been. Yeah, that's correct, Adrian. Andrew first visited Hamden around about January 
February 2017. Um, at that point, he met up with Stuart Reagan, chief exec. He subsequently had another meeting with um, Mr. Reagan at Hamden and invited him for lunch, at which point he agreed that they would get Andrew into the Hamden Clinic over there and, and speak to psychologists, psychotherapists. Andrew welcomed this opportunity to, to actually speak to a professional in relation to what he had suffered through years of abuse by Torbett and the impact that it had on his mental health. I'll never forget, it was a Friday afternoon in May 2017 and, and Andrew phoned me extremely upset and I knew that he'd been going over that day to Hamden for an appointment and you know he, he said I'm I'm so upset I'm you know I'm, I've just been left again and I said what, what do you mean and he said well I've been told today by um, the doctor that he was was seen at the Hamden clinic that unfortunately this was his last session and he would have to go back and contact his GP or his, his local mental health team to, to help him because the SFA simply didn't have the funding to carry on the therapy sessions and the counselling that they had started for him two, two months b- before. I can't even begin to tell you the effect that that had on him. And Well, in fact, shortly after that, within the, the days following that, Andrew had his second suicide attempt because he just once again felt that no one cared, um, no one was listening. It, it had nowhere to turn, basically. You know, we, we could only do what we could do. We're not professionals. We were still trying to come to terms with what Andrew had shared was in relation to having been sexually abused as a child whilst he was at Celtic Boys Club. But to think that they just kicked him to the curb like that, Adrian, it's, it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking. And of course, the report, when it comes out, Michelle, will address the wider issue of child abuse in Scottish football. And we know, sadly, that many young boys were abused at clubs other than Celtic Football Club. But your particular concern is with Celtic because your brother was abused at Celtic Boys Club. What do you hope the report will do in terms of shedding light on Celtic or Celtic Boys Club role in all this? Ultimately, um, the truth. However, over the last couple of years, I'm not sure if we're going to get the truth. But I really do hope and pray that the recommendations are there and there's things that's put in place to ensure we do all we can as a society to make it Far more difficult for people like Jim Torbett to get near children and to do to them what's happened over the last five decades at Celtic Boys Club. It was paramount to Andrew when he spoke out that everything was done to ensure no other child suffered what he did. That's all we, we really, really want, to make sure that the children of Scotland, whether it be playing football, swimming, gymnastics are much, much safer. Michelle Gray. And, as I mentioned in that interview, the Scottish Football Association has now stopped responding to my emails about the report. If they'd like to reconsider that and go on the record, we'd be delighted to hear from them on this podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow our Twitter stream for more updates. And if you want to support our work, please go to the GoFundMe link on our podcast page. Thanks for listening. My name's Adrian Goldberg. 
We'll see you again soon.